want to again welcome you to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're very glad to have you. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, yeah, if you're visiting with us, it's just a, an honor um, to have you this morning. Our passage this morning is Genesis chapter 49. There's, uh, you'll see that printed in your order of worship. And this morning, we're just two chapters away, as Nate mentioned earlier, from the end of the book of Genesis and from the end of this narrative, this saga of the story of Joseph. For the last 13 chapters of this book, the author is focused on how Israel gets to Egypt through the ministry of Joseph and how they're saved there. For the last 13 chapters, the big picture narrative, the big picture flow of the story has been trying to get Israel to Egypt to save them there. But it's, it's really interesting. Once they get there, the focus of the story immediately shifts to how they're going to get back out. And so, I mean, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, they haven't even taken their shoes off yet. They have not even sat down in Egypt yet before, before Jacob starts to tell them, don't get comfortable. We're not home yet. We're not there yet. And so the whole, the whole focus shifts, again, to how they're going to get back out of Egypt and to the promised land. Jacob, the old blind patriarch, he keeps reminding his sons and he keeps reminding us, the readers, that Israel isn't home yet. They're still journeying. They're, so, they're still sojourning. Their hope is still ahead of them. There's, there's more. There's better yet to come. And so Jacob's dying words to his sons, his last request is that he not be buried there in Egypt, but that his sons take him back to a land that doesn't even belong to them yet. He's, he's just got a hole in the ground there, a cave. But he says, take me back there because one day what's promised is going to become reality. And one day what's not yet is going to be what is. <laughs> One day God's going to bless us there, and one day God is going to turn us into a blessing to the nations there. One day we're going to see with the eyes in our heads what we can only see with the eyes of our hearts right now. There's a future coming. It's on its way. And that's what our passage is about this morning. Genesis 49 is the last recorded words of Jacob, the patriarch, to his sons. He gathers all 12 of them together around his deathbed and he addresses each one of them individually. And his last words to them are about their future, about the future development of the nation of Israel. And it's fascinating. Here on his deathbed, Jacob the patriarch becomes Jacob the prophet. And God gives him access. It's limited access, but it's real access to how the future is going to unfold for the nation of Israel, for his sons. He begins his speech to them with, let me tell you what's going to happen in days to come, in latter days. Let me tell you what's about to happen to you. And I've got to be honest. <laughs> My guess is that after Jacob dies, that his 12 sons probably walk out of the room, look at each other, scratch their heads and say, what? What did he just say? <laughs> um, what am I supposed to do with that? And that really might, that might be your response to this too after we read this. You might think, this is pretty strange. Um, because this is not quite the deathbed speech that we're expecting. It's just not. I mean, if, if we're honest, it's pretty strange at times. Some sons get way more attention than other sons. And it's very poetic. It's full of 
plant and animal imagery and similes and metaphors, and there's lots of play on words in the Hebrew. And in places, it's pretty difficult to nail down exactly what Jacob is saying. And, and it's supposed to be a blessing. He tells us that at the end. It's supposed to be a blessing, but, but at times it sounds, it sounds a whole lot more like he's cursing his sons rather than blessing them. So we might read these last words of Jacob and say, what is he saying here? And what does it have to do with me? Is there any good news here for me? Well, let's read and find out. Genesis chapter 49, this is God's word. Then Jacob called his sons and he said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, but he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe, that, that, is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a, a, a fruitful bough by a spring, and his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel." By the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you. By the God of your Father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers." Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12, son, are the 12 tribes of Israel. 
This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would now give us eyes to see you and give us ears to hear you. The good news of the gospel this morning through this passage in your word. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So on the surface, these last words of Jacob here, they seem to be a a prediction, a sometimes clear but sometimes not so clear foretelling and and forthtelling of what the future holds for Israel. It's as if God allows Jacob on his deathbed to, to take off his patriarch hat and to put on his prophet hat. And he looks down the corridors of time to see how his family tree is going to grow and expand into the future. He sees his 12 sons before him in the room there, but it's as if God gives him the eyes to see his, his 12 sons all grown up into the tribes and the generations that they're going to be years and years down the road when they've become the great nation that God promised that they would be. He sees his covenant family tree blossoming and growing across time and space and into the future. And what he sees, this covenant family tree growing into the future, what he sees is both wonderful and horrifying. It's a covenant family tree that's both very beautiful and very broken. In some places, this tree is blossoming and healthy and strong like in the springtime. But in other places, this family tree is rotten and dead like in the wintertime. Jacob sees great hope and great pain ahead for his family as this family tree tree grows into the nation that God promised that it would become. Now, one way that we could approach this One way that we could approach this rather strange uh, last speech of Jacob is we could spend the rest of our time looking at what Jacob says here to each of his individual sons, and we could trace how, how his words become true in the future of each particular um, tribe in the Old Testament. We could do that, and it would be really fascinating by the way, Um, because so much of what happens later in Exodus and what happens later in Joshua, uh, it's present here in seed form. It's here in seed form in Genesis 49, what is going to take place and ripen um, later on in the Old Testament. And so we could spend the rest of our time connecting what Jacob says here to this later event in the Bible or, or this prophecy to that later development We could spend the next 30 minutes doing that. It would be interesting, but the focus would be all in the past and all on Israel, and it probably wouldn't touch our hearts. 
it probably wouldn't engage our hearts very much. I think there's a better approach. It's the, it's the approach that I think the Apostle Paul would recommend to us um, in Romans 1. He, he writes in the, in the beginning of his letter to Romans, one of, the, one of the most fascinating verses, I think, in all of the Bible. He says that he, Paul, was set apart for the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. <laughs> Did you catch what Paul just said? He said that the gospel... The good news, the good news about salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ, that gospel was promised way beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's saying that the good news is actually very old news. The good news is very old news. The prophets in the Old Testament have been talking about it this whole time. It's not a new development. It was promised way beforehand. This is what God's been doing the whole time is the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And that means that here in Genesis 49, which it's the first extended prophecy that we have in all the Old Testament, when Jacob the patriarch turns into Jacob the prophet, that means that Jacob has good news for you here. It means that there's good news for us here in these last words of Jacob the prophet. What is it? Well, I want you to think about, first of all, the good news about how God works. The first, first of all, the good news about how God works. I think it's fair to say that at the, at the very best, Jacob's sons are a mixed bag. At the very best. Um, there's some good and, and some not so good. And honestly, to call them a mixed bag, to call his 12 sons a mixed bag, it's being way too generous, way too optimistic, way too charitable, to put it that way. <laughs> Because these 12 sons that are gathered around the deathbed of their father, except for Joseph and Benjamin, they were all total scoundrels. Um, except for Joseph and Benjamin, they were liars, deceivers, crooks, kidnappers, murderers. These 12 sons are not the characters that you would ever imagine being capable of producing anything redeeming and healing in this world. They're just not. These are not the acorns that you would ever imagine being capable of growing into a family tree that would be the carrier of God's blessings into this world. They're just not. He starts with Reuben, and he curses Reuben. <laughs> he removes Reuben from the privilege of being the firstborn because of what happened in Genesis 35, verse 22. It's just a reference there, but Jacob remembers. He remembers that Reuben sexually took advantage of Jacob's concubine Bilhah. It was a perverted power grab, a way to communicate to Jacob and a way to communicate to the rest of his brothers, I'm the alpha male. I think I'm the head of this family. I'm in charge. But it obviously has the opposite effect because here Reuben is cast down from his place of prominence. So we start with Reuben, a perverted power grabber. And then it doesn't get any better when we get to Simeon and Levi. Jacob recalls there what happens in Genesis 34, which is a tragic episode from beginning to end when Simeon and Levi murdered in cold blood all of the males in this city of Shechem in response to the rape of their sister. Remember, they made peace with the men of that city. And under the guise of that truce, they come in and they murder all of the men in that city while they were defenseless. <laughs> And for that, Jacob 
curses them. Not a good start, is it? <laughs> I mean, we are 0 for 3 so far. Um, I mean, after Jacob is through addressing these three oldest sons, we're, we're thinking as readers, this is not good. <laughs> is this, uh, I mean, this isn't a blessing. This is an airing of grievances. This is, is Jacob just going to pull out all of the skeletons from the closet and, and rehearse in public all of the old family brokenness and sin that's in this family? All of the family sin and depravity? Because he really could have. <laughs> And we're bracing for something even worse when we get to Judah. You remember Judah had been the ringleader in selling Joseph to slavery and lying to Jacob about it. And before that, in Genesis chapter 37, he sleeps with his, with his daughter-in-law thinking that she's a prostitute. And he gets her pregnant. This is not looking good. Not looking good for this family tree. At the very best, at the very best, they're a mixed bag. And granted, there's, there's some rays of hope a little bit later on when we, get to, um, when we get to Judah, when we get to Joseph, when we get to Asher and Naphtali, and Jacob sees there in their future wealth and beauty and prosperity. But, but then he sees slavery ahead for Issachar, and he sees conflict ahead for Gad. He compares Dan to a serpent. That's never a good thing in the Bible. And so at the end of the day, this is not the family this is not the family that you would ever imagine in your wildest dreams would be the carrier, the channel for God's blessings to the world. But this is how God works. The good news here is that this is how God loves to work. This is the kind of people and these are the kinds of situations that God loves to work. The, the kinds of people and situations that you would never expect could bring about anything good. We see it over and over again in the Bible that God has this preference. He has this preference for using the weak, the small, the ordinary, the passed over, the dead ends, the nobodies, the things that you would look at and say there's no hope there. We look at Jacob's 12 sons and we see a ragtag, broken, deeply flawed immigrant family in Egypt. <laughs> and this is not the kind of raw material that God could ever use to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring, to bring blessing and peace. <laughs> Surely God works with better raw materials, right? But God looks at this ragtag, broken, deeply flawed family and he says, this is the kind of raw material that I love to work with. This is the kind of mess that I'm going to redeem the world with. It reminds me of a scene in one of the greatest sports movies ever made, Hoosiers. You remember, uh, it's about a high school basketball team in Indiana, um, Hickory, Hickory High School, I believe it was called. And you remember basketball is everything in Indiana. And this, this, this high school, which has had success in the past, they've had some rough years, though, um, and they take a risk by hiring Coach Norman Dale. Coach Norman Dale, who he has a lot of experience, but also a lot of baggage and trouble in his past. And Coach Norman Dale, though, he knows his basketball. And he comes in, and he has a rocky start there with his team, though. What begins with a team of seven very quickly turns into a team of six 
and almost five, and he has, uh, he, he's just as stubborn as he is unconventional, Coach Norman Dale. And in the opening game of the season, in the first game, you remember one of his best play, one of his players gets fouled out, and one of his one of his best players though won't stick with the game plan, won't stick with this four pla- this four pass game plan that he's trying to initiate into their into their strategy and what they've been practicing. This this player goes off on his own and does what he wants, and Coach Dale benches him, and with just a few crucial seconds left in the game. And with the game on the line, he's only got four players left out there on the court. And you remember the crowd starts to stand up and yell at him, and his players are looking at him like he's crazy. And the ref comes over and says, Coach, you need one more. You need one more. And Coach Dale looks back at him and says, My team's on the floor. My team's on the floor. <laughs> In other words, this is who I'm working with. This is who I'm committed to. It doesn't look like much, but this is who I'm working with, and I'm sticking with them. Can you hear God saying that over these 12 sons here? My team's on the floor. This is who I'm working with. This is the kinds of people and the kinds of situations that I work with. They're weak and they're flawed, and you wouldn't expect anything good to come from them, but this is how I work, and this is how I'm going to redeem the world. Brothers and sisters and friends, there's good news here about how God works because it means that he can use you and me. The good news here is that it means that he can use the parts of your stories that you think are too painful or too messy, or too broken, or too hopeless, or too irredeemable. It means that he can use the parts of your story that you think that's raw material that God could never use. But there's good news about how God works. (laughs) He loves to take mess and produce something beautiful. He's been doing it for a long time. He's got a lot of practice at it. And you need to hear God saying that he's not going to stop with you. You need to hear God saying to you this morning that he's not going to run out of ideas of how to change mess into something beautiful when he comes across your mess, when he comes across your dead ends. So there's good news here about how God works. Secondly, I want you to think about the good news about why God blesses. The good news about why God blesses. Here we're going to focus on what Jacob says to Joseph in verses 22 through 26. He, he takes up about 40% of his speech with both Jacob, I mean, with both Joseph and with uh, Judah. But we're going to focus here on what he says to Joseph, beginning in verse 22. And you remember Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they had been adopted by Jacob in the last chapter. They now receive this firstborn prominent position in the family, in the family tree. And here Jacob just unleashes blessing on them through Joseph. It's like he opens up the spigot all the way and just lets it flow to overflowing. Six times here in this section, the word blessing or bless is used. And and just so we know who is doing the blessing, there's five different names used for God here. The mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father, all the, the Almighty. And so Joseph, way more than his brothers, is blessed 
over the top. And the tribes of his two sons, we really do see this playing out as the family tree grows. Ephraim and Manasseh become the two chief and biggest tribes in Israel. But I want to ask the question. I want you to think about this. Why? Why does God bless Joseph? Why is Joseph blessed so over and above and beyond the rest of his brothers? Well, you might be thinking, duh. I know that one. Of course. Joseph's the one who's blessed here over the top because he's the good guy in the story, right? I mean, the whole, the whole last 13 chapters have been about how Joseph's the good guy. He's been faithful and obedient. He's in, in really difficult circumstances. Joseph is the Christ figure. He's the one who's blessed here over the top because he's been faithful, right? But I want you to see something. While there is some truth to that, there's so much more going on here. Because, think about it, if, if that's all there is to it, then it might be easy to walk away from this thinking, okay, okay, that makes sense. I think I've got it. Joseph obeyed, so he was blessed. Joseph was faithful, and so God was faithful to him. That makes sense. Joseph did this, and so God did this. Joseph was this kind of person, so therefore God had to do this to him. That means, okay, if, if you're this kind of person, then God does this for you. And if you're not this kind of person, then God doesn't do this for you. Okay, good. That makes sense. But I want you to see, though, if we walk away from the story of Joseph thinking that, then you've missed the whole point completely. <laughs> If that's what we walk away with, thinking because Joseph was this kind of person, then that's why God blessed him, then we've missed the point entirely because that's not good news. The gospel is not be this kind of person and then God will bless you. The gospel is not be faithful and then God will be faithful to you. That's good instruction, but that's not good news. <laughs> Because you can't be faithful enough, and you can't be good enough. You can't be the right kind of person. And if God were to wait for you to be faithful enough and good enough to be the right kind of person so that he could bless you, he would be, he'd be waiting for a very, very long time. So then why does God bless? Why does God bless Joseph, and why does he bless you? Well, we get a hint in verse 26 at the very end where Jacob says, May they, that is, may all of the blessings of God be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Who was set apart from his brothers. Set apart by who? By God. Set apart when? Before he had done anything. Before Joseph had been faithful or unfaithful, before Joseph had obeyed or disobeyed. In other words, maybe the fact that Joseph was faithful says a whole lot more about God than it does about Joseph. And maybe the reason that God blessed Joseph is not so much about what was in Joseph's heart, but because of what was in God's heart. 
The story of Joseph is not the story of Joseph's faithfulness to God after all. It's the story of God's faithfulness to Joseph. (laughs) And just in case we've missed that, remember in chapter 39, Chapter 39 records the story of how Joseph was faithful when he was tempted in Potiphar's house and then in the prison. Um, But just listen to this. Listen to this and ask yourself the question, who was being faithful to who in all of those circumstances? Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Verse 3, the Lord was with Joseph and caused all that he did to succeed. Verse 5, the blessing of the Lord was on all that Joseph had. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Verse 23, the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Who's being faithful to who? And that's just from chapter 39. We see that all over the 13 chapters that deal with Joseph. The whole story of Joseph is about God's faithfulness to him. And then God turns around and blesses Joseph because of how he had been faithful to Joseph. (laughs) Do you see how that happens there? Y'all, that's the good news about why God blesses. He blesses because of who he is, not because of who we are. He blesses because he's good, not because we're good. He blesses because of what's in him, not because of what's in us. His blessing originates, first of all, in his own heart and not as a response of what he sees in your heart. And that means that if you're here this morning and if you can name any of the ways that God has blessed you, I mean, coming up on Thanksgiving season, if you can think of anything that you're thankful for, whether it be your life, your health, your family, your job, your children, your spouse, anything, (laughs) if you know that God has blessed you, those blessings are meant to lead you back to him. Because those blessings are not God responding to something that he saw first and foremost in you. (laughs) Those blessings are are the evidence of God being faithful to you. And if you've been faithful back to him, it was because he was faithful to you first. (laughs) That's why God blesses. That's the good news of why God blesses. So we've seen the good news of how God works, the good news of why God blesses, and lastly and hopefully briefly, I want you to see the good news about who God promises. The good news about who God promises. When Jacob begins talking to Judah here, his fourth son, it's, it's interesting. He shifts from talking about what's coming in the future to, talk about, to talking about who's coming in the future. And this prophecy gets very personal at this point. He looks down the growth of Judah's family tree, and he doesn't talk about how the, how the tribe is going to develop. He doesn't talk about the future of the nation. He talks about a person, about an individual. He talks about someone who's coming. Someone who's coming from Judah. And listen to how he describes this this coming one, this promised one. In verse 9, three times he's compared to a lion. And in the ancient Near East, the lion was a symbol of kingship, of authority, of, of majesty and power. And so this coming one who's coming from Judah is going to be a king. And then in verse 10, that makes verse 10 makes it explicit. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the people. 
These lines tell us that this promised one, he's not going to be your typical ordinary government figure. He's not just going to be a king among kings, but he's going to be the king. Not only over people, but over all of the peoples, plural. And so he's not just a local king, he's international, global. And then verse 11 tells us what the effect of his reign is. And this is fascinating. It's peace and and prosperity like you've never heard of before, like we've never seen. (laughs) Because in that culture during wartime, kings rode on horses, but during peacetime, when, when there were no more enemies to fight, they rode on donkeys. And the picture here is that when he dismounts his donkey to get off, (laughs) the hitching post for his donkey is the best grapevines in the land. There's so much abundance. There's so much prosperity. There's so much to go around that he just ties his donkey up to the best grapevines in the land. And in fact, the best wine in the land is flowing so freely that the king uses it to wash his clothes in. Imagine using a $1,000 bottle of the best Italian Merlot as bathwater. It says that he will wash his garments, then they'll look like blood because of, because of the blood of the grapes. There's so much of it. Peace and prosperity like you've never imagined. So when this lion, when this promised king comes, he's going to be unequaled. He's going to be the uncontested ruler of the world, and he's going to usher in a time of unimaginable peace and prosperity like the world has never seen before, but that the world was made for. This is is what you were made for. You were made to live in a good world under the rule of a good king, and it's ultimately what your heart is yearning for right now. Wherever your heart is this morning and whatever you're experiencing, whether it be grief or pain or fear or loneliness or worry or doubt, wherever you are this morning, what your heart really wants is to live in a good world under the reign of a good king. And the good news of the gospel is not only that he was promised, but that he's come. That he's come, that he's, that he's come to begin to make the world new. That he's come to bring the future, this future, into the present. That he's come to, to make his promises a reality. That he's come to make a good world and to reign over it as the good king. But the good news is not just that he was promised to come. The good news is also how he came. It's fascinating, and we'll close with this. Why is it that God chose Judah, this scoundrel, this low-life fourth son of Jacob? Why did he choose Judah to promise the Redeemer, the Messiah, the good king through Because if you look at Judah's life, there was not one single character trait that you would say, that reminds me of Jesus, except for one. You remember that episode when Benjamin was in prison and Joseph, even though they don't know it's Joseph yet, he's the king of Egypt and he says, no, he's staying here. And Judah gets down on his knees and says, take me instead. Let him go free and let me 
go instead. Take me in his place. And it's as if God looks at that and he says, that reminds me. (laughs) That looks like the king that I'm going to send. That reminds me of the one who's going to come as a lion, but they're not going to recognize him as a lion first because he's going to look more like a lamb. He's going to look like someone who comes and says, take me instead. Kill me instead. Take me in their place. The good news of the gospel is that this is the king who's come. The lion, who is the lamb, who reigns over you because he gave himself for you. And this is his table, the table of the lion who is the lamb that he invites you to this morning. Let's prepare to come to that table. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we lay down our hearts before you and we pray that you would meet the very desires of our hearts this morning. Wherever you find us, we pray that you would come. O Lion of the tribe of Judah, O Lamb of God, come to us, whether for the first time or for the 10,000th time, to give us new faith, new trust, new obedience and new repentance because you were the one who came to rule over us by first giving yourself for us. We pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.